When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Ah, it's our tell show. It's a Monday, folks. So glad you're back with us. We are back home after being on the road for a couple of days. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us. A lot to get to this week. Going to turn down the noise of the news cycle. Get back to work. Glad you're with us. Year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll on on this April the 25th. And we're going to talk about a couple different things. Uh, Ronald Klain, the uh, chief of staff for President Biden, took one look at the French elections and drew a very questionable conclusion. We'll touch on that. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, down in Georgia, a very problematic congresswoman who we think should be expelled from Congress. Nevertheless, she was on the witness stand. And wouldn't you know it, they're really bombastic people when you get them under oath tend to change their tune on what they actually say. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Also in the program, I always try to end on a good note or a happy note. In this case, it is uh, Sean Connery, the late Sean Connery, the great Sean Connery. He had quite an extensive art collection. Turns out he actually had a real-life Picasso going up to auction for charity. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Our guest today, uh, Gabriel Salazar Singh, uh, another great Young Voices contributor. He's in Costa Rica, but we're going to talk a little Mexico, uh, a little Mexico politics. There's some very troubling things going on south of the border of our neighbor down there that we need to talk about. The government there, AMLO, uh, doing some constitutional referendums expanding power is he trying to become a dictator like has gone through so much of latin america and south america we'll talk to gabriel salazar singh as our guest today but first uh let's talk about that french election we mentioned just a minute ago over in france there's been a lot of press over here we've talked about it a couple times on the show uh marie le pen taking another crack at trying to become president she's deemed a far-right candidate for a lot of reasons not only because of her politics but also she has some ties with Vladimir Putin. Her political party has some very questionable stuff when it comes to things like race, like nationalism, like national populism. Uh, there's some accusations, even though that political party got bank loans from Russia. Uh, that well goes really deep. You can look that up in your own time. Needless to say, it would not have been good for anybody in the free world if she had won the election in France. She didn't make it to the runoff. The way they do it in France is they have a multi-tiered system. So she did a runoff. Well, they had it on Sunday, and President Emmanuel Macron won, and he won convincingly. Um, the polling wound up being about 58% to 41% for Marie Le Pen. Now, this is a pretty wide margin. This was covered as like it was going to be a much tighter race and like Le Pen was going to have a shot at it. Now, there's a couple of things we want to touch on here about this for a few reasons. One is in the Western media, uh, why is it always covered like a horse race? Well, that's their only template. 
for these kind of things. They always want to have a horse race. It's got to be close because otherwise you can't cover it. And Marie Le Pen, the Western media, especially American media, just could not resist trying to tie her to Donald Trump, even though they don't really have any direct ties. It just fits the narrative really well. So they tried really, really hard to make this seem like it was going to be closer than what it actually wound up being. And it ended up being Macron won very, very handily. Now, the other part of this is what does it mean for France? Well, Marine Le Pen was talking about taking them out of NATO, was talking about maybe even taking them out of the EU. Again, we talked she has some very questionable ties with Vladimir Putin. This could have been a really ugly thing for France and for the Western order and for a NATO and an EU that has really come together in the last few months in the wake of Russia's uh, aggression in Ukraine, their illegal war and all the war crimes that Vladimir Putin is putting upon the Ukrainian people. So what happened in France? Well, it's not all good news for Emmanuel Macron. They more voted against Le Pen than they voted for him. He's still going to have a mess on his hands when it comes to governing. They've had a lot of protests in the streets. They've got a lot of issues going on in France, but he did win this election pretty handily. One thing they wanted to point out in a lot of this coverage, uh, France 24, we read from them a little bit earlier, um, the abstention rate, people that did not vote in France, was 28.2%. That's up 1.9% from the first round and 2.7 points from the second round in 2017, last time they did this. That's a lot of people abstaining by French standards. But then again, when you think about it, that same abstention rate here in America would be one of our highest attended elections. It's just funny how things work out like that. A couple other things to go into. Uh, Le Pen trying to spin this as something else, described her defeat, this is reading from France 24, as, quote, striking victory. Huh? And says she was launching a great battle for the June parliamentary polls. Striking victory. She lost 58 to 41. This is multiple failed attempts to become president, none of which did she get really, really close. Striking victory compared to what? The Scots at Culloden? Pickett at Gettysburg? We kind of make fun of our French friends for retreating and surrendering and things like that. A little unfairly, probably. But this is kind of the other end of that spectrum. This is delusional. She's not any closer to victory, thank God, because she's a very highly questionable human being, let alone politician. But she's going to spin this, and they're not going to go away. Uh, Le Pen was held up here in the States and elsewhere across the world as part of what they call the global right. More right-wing, very nationalist, very populist. Strong ties to very questionable things like Russian propaganda and misinformation. It is good for the entire world that this went down the way it did. It's good that Marie Le Pen lost. It's good that the Fifth Republic still seems to have a little bit of life in it and still wants to be just that, a republic and not some autocratic dictatorship that bows to the whims of people like Vladimir Putin. We have longstanding ties to France when our founding fathers sat down to put together the kind of government they wanted us to have, they drew heavily from French philosophy. The French came to our aid without their Navy. Uh, we may not have won the Revolutionary War in the manner we did and probably not as fast as we did. They've been our friends for a very, very long time. Long may they be our allies. We want to be them. And we've returned the favor a few times over, including helping liberate Paris and the rest of France from the Nazis in World War II. The French and us, have a lot of longstanding ties, but one of them that must be most important is freedom and liberty. Now, France has a different system than us. Obviously, their country 
has a lot more tendencies more towards the European model. They're far to the left of what we would think of as our model. But even still, there still seems to be some sensibility left in France. And it's a good thing Marie Le Pen went down. Otherwise, freedom would have went down in short order right after her. More hotel right after this. back to her tell still talking about this french election for just a second uh ronald Klein, he is the chief of staff for president biden now him and biden have been together for a long time he served with him when uh president biden was the vice president so he's been around for the block a time or two uh we kind of jokingly call him the prime minister because the job of the chief of staff is he's the gatekeeper he runs everything but he also controls what does and does not get to the president it also means everybody underneath him goes through him, good, bad, and different, which makes him both very powerful, but also the target of just about everybody in Washington. It's a tough job. That's why people tend to run through them pretty quickly. But anyway, uh, Ronald Klain has some bad tendencies, and one of them is he likes to get on Twitter, and he's not very good at it. Uh, He put out this tweet uh, about the French election, and I'm just going to read it verbatim. This is uh, the official White House chief of staff Twitter handle, by the way. An interesting observation, just FYI, President Macron appears to have secured a double-digit victory over Le Pen at a time when his approval rating is 36%. Hmm. And he is quote-tweeting a piece from Morning Consult that talks about those numbers and government leaders and country trajectories in 22 different countries. Oh, Mr. Klein. Okay, let's go through this real slowly using small words. For folks like Ron Klein, because he mostly retweets things like Jen Rubin articles that are really, really flowery and complimentary to the president. And just in case anybody from Logan's listening, we don't want to lose them. So let's go slowly. Make sure everybody out in overflow. Here's what's going on. Okay. France's system is different and things that are different are not the same. France has a multi-tiered. This was a one-on-one election. They don't have things like the Electoral College, and they also have a different system of government, and this is not going to be completely analogous to American politics. Yes, Macron had a very bad uh, approval rating, but approval rating is something that happens in a vacuum. That's where you call people up and you say, hey, do you like the president or not? Yes or no. That's different than an election where you have two people running and you have, do you like this person enough to vote for this other person? That's a whole different story. Case in point in France, we already talked about the abstention rate was almost 30 percent where a bunch of French folks took a look at that hot mess and went, nah, bro, we're good. We're staying home. We had this here in America as well, even with record turnout and a record amount of votes for Joe Biden and for Donald Trump. Both both exceeded all previous vote tallies for their parties. There were still over 40 million Americans took one look at that hot mess and go, nah, I'm not having anything to do with this. And they did not vote. That's why approval ratings have a little bit of a limited shelf life when it comes to politics, especially when it comes to projecting out. First of all, we don't know how the midterms are going to go. We're assuming the Republicans have a really good year, maybe a wave year. We'll see how it breaks down. That'll change how President Biden's appro- how President Biden is perceived. Why? Well, because now he's working against a Republican Congress. It's going to change things a little bit. 
And if he runs in 2024, which we all think he will, unless something catastrophic happens, he'll be running a very different campaign than 2022. He could have very bad approval ratings. And if the Republicans put together somebody who has even worse public approval, he'd still win with those bad approval ratings are not votes. Approval ratings are not actual poll data. Approval ratings are something taken in a vacuum. They can be an indicator, but it's not a thermostat. It doesn't set the temperature for an election necessarily. So, yes, Ronald Klain, the French president, won with bad approval rating. You may not have a Le Pen for Joe Biden to run against. And you may have a Donald Trump, which may be not all that different, but that's another matter for another day. Just make sure you understand every time we do these kind of analogies, things that are different are not the same. We are not France. We have a different system of government. And he should just focus on his own house because that bad approval rating, Mr. Klain, has your fingerprints all over it. You should probably see to that or you may not be in the next administration either which way, even if your boss does win. More hotel right after this. Ah, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, let's go not overseas, but just south of the border. One of our neighbors, we're going to talk a little about about Mexico, but our guest that's joining us is actually a little further south than that. Costa Rica, one of the real beautiful places in the Western Hemisphere. I got a buddy of mine who lives down there. Keeps wanting me to visit. I'm going to have to take him up on that. Gabriel Salazar Singh. We're going from the oldest, youngest voice, which is me, to the youngest, youngest voice. Uh, Gabriel, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you. Thank Happy. you for having me. Absolutely. Appreciate your time today. Um, all right. For folks that don't know, you've been writing in uh, International Policy Digest. Uh, what's been going on south of the border? Because other than the border stuff and immigration stuff that we talk about in the United States and it gets a lot of play, uh, obviously the stuff with Governor Abbott right now, that's all border policy stuff. But what actually goes on in Mexico doesn't get as much press here. Um, the president down there, AMLO, I'm going to let you pronounce it, not me. That's the abbreviation. Uh, there's been some news with him and you've been writing about just big picture wise, just to set the scene for it. Let people know what the current state of play in Mexican politics in the country is right now with president AMLO. Yes. So to summarize it quickly, uh, my piece, as you mentioned, published in international policy digest, I denounce a Mexican president, uh, this Manuel Lopez Obrador, AMLO for short. Has acted in a populist manner to get much more power than the president already has in Mexican politics. He sought to delegitimize uh, the press, uh, Mexican institutionality, reform the constitution to his favor. He has revealed a, a journalist's salary on a presidential conference uh, and called for a nonsensical refor uh, referendum on whether or not he should remain in power for longer, which, in my opinion, uh, will only help polarize Mexico, even though it already happened. I think that the effects, we will not see them until the 2024 elections. Now, when he originally ran, he ran on an anti-corruption platform. Um, he was, um, it's a different kind of populism because obviously there's cultural differences and the system of government's different. But you could say it was a populist campaign. He was big on the anti-corruption. We know the issues uh, long running, long before him, issues in Mexico corruptions of course they're always dealing with criminal elements these sorts of things and it's a it's kind of a 
how would you describe let, let's just pull up and park here for a second because it's important for people to understand the mexican style of government that they have right now how would you explain it to an american audience that's used to our you know pretty strong federal system where the states have a lot of power the federal government has a lot of power and there's conflict there decentralized is kind of the wrong term, but it is kind of a unique system. Just explain the system of government for just a minute so that we have a base of understanding of what these things that he's doing means. Yes. So as you mentioned before, uh, Mexico has a federalized system of government. They, of course, have the office of the president. They have a, a legislative body, which is composed, or it's a camera leg legislative body uh, of government. They have the Senate and the lower uh, lower chamber of Congress. They have a judicial system, which I believe has been uh, a root of most of the troubles in governance in Mexico, because even academics say that the judicial system in Mexico is extremely weak and constitutional reforms over the years have helped weaken the, the power of the judicial system. Now, since those judicial system is various weeks, we see that um, on the news, unfortunately, with some of the violence and some of those issues. What does the average Mexican think when they go to vote electorally? You talked about the constitutional reform process, but, you know, day in and day out, you know, we, we're doing a midterm cycle and we understand that sets up our presidential election in 2024. As the Mexican citizen is looking at this, do they see this as because, again, um, AMLO ran as a non-systemics, the term you use. He ran anti-corruption. He was going to change the system. But it seems like now he's just changing the system to fit his means and his wants. What's the average citizen in Mexico thinking when they go to vote in this particular cycle? Do they have hope or is it more uh, we're stuck with this and we don't know what else to do and we don't have a better option? So let me give you some context uh, first. In the article, I mentioned the concept of the, of the perfect dictatorship. It's a concept that a Peruvian author violently denounced in Mexican television back in the 90s. In the beginning of the 90s, I think, where he said that Mexico was the perfect dictatorship, not because uh, it functioned well as a dictatorship and because there was the, the permanence of power of a single individual, but because there was the permanence of power of a single party and they disguised it perfectly as a democracy. They, however, penetrated all aspects of Mexican uh, culture, their system. Uh, for example, the opposition parties were financed by the, by the main party, the government party, the PRI, uh, which tells you how much of an opposition they were. <laughs> they, um, they, uh, they used nationalism to polarize people the, the, it was so systematic that even the owner of Televisa, the main te the news channel back then, and even now, uh, called himself a proud soldier of El PRI. In the Enrique de la Madrid elections in the 90s, 80s, uh, I don't precisely recall when, when he was elected, they, they made sure to cover all of his events and and his his opponent wasn't really covered by the by the press. Now, it wasn't until the election of Felipe Calderón that the PRI lost the elections. Then came another party, El Pan, and those were established as the two main traditional parties in Mexico. 
Now, uh, you know, as you mentioned before, that corruption is rampant in Mexico. Gang violence through the cartels, cartels is extremely high. And the people are obviously tired of that. In the 2018 elections, they demonstrated that by voting in Andres Manuel López Obrador AMLO with a 53% of, of people who voted for him. Uh, you, you said that he ran as a populist, but he has governed as a populist as well. Before this referendum, asking if he should resign or not from power, he had another referendum asking the citizens whether the where the, 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 the ex-presidents, the former presidents still alive should be taken into, into trial for corruption or, or whatever, for their actions, which obviously goes against the, the liberal democracy order of the separation of powers. It's the presidential system or the presidential figure penetrating the judicial system, getting into something that is not there. That is not in his incumbents to be in. Now, this referendum, the newer one, which was held some days ago, only 20% of the people went to vote, which tells you how apathetic the people are towards voting. 80% didn't want to vote. They didn't want to participate in the, elect in the elections or in the vo uh, voting of the referendum, which tells you that people are also tired. They are not only tired of the corruption in Mexico, but they have lost a lot of faith. And I think that that's one of the things that starts to erode democracy around the world, not only in Mexico, when people start getting tired of what they have been presenting, uh, presented, uh, that they have been manipulated by many governments. And yes, that's basically it to answer your question. I hope I answered it correctly. No, you did fine. You, when you wrote in the piece about it, again, we'll be linking to your piece in International Policy Digest. I've had things published there before. Um, you mentioned that they had actually downgraded Democracy Index report. They bumped Mexico down from a flawed democracy, that's their term, to a hybrid regime laboring um, Obrador and a liberal populist. We just talked about the populist label and what it means. Because, and this is you writing here, because of his disregard for democratic norms and his continued efforts to concentrate power in the executive branch. Illiberal populist, I think, is a fantastic term. But that hybrid regime term, you mentioned it before. Let's loop back to it for just a second, though. Having the pretense of democracy, having the pretense, these re he's using the referendum system a lot here. That hybrid regime, I think, is a label that should be applied to this maybe a little bit more than populism, because populism is the, the movement to get the political power of the people involved. But the hybrid regime is kind of the nuts and bolts of this is like, hey, we're going to use the democratic process to become authoritative. It's just the last vote is going to be to make us authoritative for life. That hybrid regime seems like a really good way of explaining that. And that's a great term for it. Yes, uh, I agree. I think that it's highly um it's, it's worrying that uh, an institution as serious as The Economist and, the, and their index has labeled the uh, Mexican, Mexican democracy going down. And you've got to see all aspects of government and how AMLO has penetrated them. The Supreme Court president is in favor of him or has been said to be in favor of him. He controls both chambers of Congress and many democracies in Latin America. So we know about the three 
separation the separation of power between the, the three branches, the executive, the judicial, and the legislative. But many uh, countries in, in Latin America, we could consider that the fourth power of government is their electoral institution. I think that it's worrying that um, AMLO wants to have constitutional reforms be made to, to change their, their electoral institution. For example, um, they want to... So think, think of it like this. In a, in a perfect democracy, you'd rather have technical people running a central bank. You'd rather have technical people running the electoral institution. But one of the reforms AMLO wants to make is that the people elect those who are in charge of the electoral institution. And he says, each branch of government should propose 20 candidates so that the people have 80 candidates they can choose from. Now, look at, look at it this way. We mentioned the, the, the apathy towards voting. Only 20% voted in this referendum, which means that only those who really support him uh, have, have participated in the, in the country's elections. Um, and, and, and imagine it this way. I, I'm not sure if you, if you agree with Mr. Trump's proposals and what he has said after January 6th, but imagine if the, the United States elections Uh, we're, we're polarized that way so that the people elect those who are in charge of, of buying that they are free and fair elections and that some people run with the idea of turning the elections towards Donald Trump. This is one of the, the main problems it presents. It, institutions like this shouldn't be polarized. Never under any circumstance should the central bank be polarized or politicized. And the and same goes for autonomous institutions such as the Electoral Institute. Yeah, we're talking to our friend Gabriel Salazar Singh. He's down in Costa Rica, but we're talking about Mexico, our neighbor to the south or to the north for him. Uh, when we come back after the break on Hertel, we're going to continue to talk about some of those other institutions like the press, uh, some very alarming things involving the press down south in Mexico. Also going to talk about that apathy a little bit little bit of a disparaging thing there. You only got 20% voting, but AMLO's popularity remains high. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about what he calls the anti-systematic platforms more. More with Gabriel Salazar Singh on Heard Tell right after this. Welcome back to Hertel, talking to our friend Gabriel Salazar Singh, talking a little bit about Mexico, Mexico politics, some things going on, some very troubling developments in the current uh, reign of President AMLO. Uh, we, we talked about some of those, you know, non-official institutions in America. We often talk about the press, the free press being an institution. But in Mexico, you already touched on it a little bit. There's been some really disturbing stuff in Mexico Uh, as you listed in your piece, there's been at least six journalists, prominent German journalists murdered uh, just in this year alone. Uh, we had the incident with Obrador. I'm, I still think I'm saying that wrong, but uh, AMLO 
uh, publicly what we would probably call doxing a prominent journalist, revealing their salary, revealing personal details about them, which everybody took as a pretty direct threat for good reason. What is this situation with the free press in Mexico and how does that kind of build into the constant corruption and the constant problems with the government that you don't have an accountable press that can get after the government? So journalism, the press, and every aspect related to it, I think that everyone who lives in a democracy must admire. Uh, one can criticize it. One can be against what the, uh, what the journalist has said. But to have the president vehemently attack a journalist by revealing his salary in a country which we know has high criminality rates, high gang violence, in which he knows as president that six journalists have been killed and to reveal his salary on live television, which was a high salary, tells you a lot about his motives. These aren't good motives. He's setting in, him up for, for violence, for theft, to being kidnapped. One never knows with, with the violence that goes up there. And... Sure, he's not going ahead and using policemen to kill Mr. Loret de Mola, the, the journalist. But he's certainly using his power to say, oh, maybe go ahead. Go ahead. And he said, I think I mentioned in the article where he said, if you, if you attack me, you know what happens. What can you, what can you think about a president who, do, who does that? Right. You mentioned in here uh, part of this. It's almost become a, a, a stick. I don't know how you would say that in, in Spanish, but it, it's part of his public rhetoric now to do those flourishes, the strongman routine. We've seen this with our own people. President Trump does this a lot. It's the it's the wink, wink kind of threatening stuff. It's the strongman stuff that you're alluding to. Um, you you mentioned in the piece that he kind of had a a a moment kind of similar you compared it to richard nixon's i'm not a crook moment but where he he stood up and used a very specific term that folks in mexico knew exactly what he was meaning didn't he yeah so he uses the term or he said i'm not a cacique the a chieftain in many native american tribes especially there in mexico i'm not a, a dictator and he said that as a candidate so i i I compare it to Richard Nixon's I'm not a group moment because if you got to say that as a candidate, it tells you a lot about his rhetoric, his persona, uh, how he's acted, his, his uh, proposals. Uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, let me give you another Latin American example for just a second. When he ran for president, I recall seeing an interview with Jorge Ramos, uh, a brilliant journalist who said, who asked him about his dictatorial aspirations. And Hugo Chavez used to say, no, we're going to work closely with the private sector. I believe in the private sector. I am not a dictator. Uh, dictatorship is what has happened before, even though Venezuela was a, a democracy when, when Hugo Chavez was elected president. And so I go back to what I was saying. If a, if a president has to say that, or a candidate rather, has to say that in the midst of a presidential campaign, it tells you that the people are scared, that he isn't trustworthy, 
and that his proposals, his rhetoric, his persona has been uh, like that of a dictator, especially in a, in a region that has been highly traumatized by the dictatorships that have happened over the years. Yeah. Is that what we're looking here? If, if you don't get a, some kind of an electoral defeat for him, at least for his party, if not for him directly, uh, you already mentioned Hugo Chavez. Uh, we, we know that his replacement was as bad, if not worse. There's a long history in Latin America. I mean, you can go all the way back to, you know, the Noriegas, pick whoever you want to. There's a long history of populist strongmen that turned into dictatorships. Is that really, you know, what's the likelihood of that happening in Mexico right now with AMLO? Is, is that what we're really looking? Are we really one election away from him being a perpetual strongman that is going to be electorally untouchable? So I believe the uh, permanence of power of a single person at least is one of the characteristics of a dictatorship but not the only one he could perfectly leave power in the next elections because well presidential election is not it's not viable under mexican law there there is no way for immediate reelection at least i don't really know if if there's way for reelection later on but Uh, one has the impediment of presidential election being an impediment for dictators around the world. It has never been an impediment. Take a look at the, at the last presidential polls. I've said before that I believe that making uh, electoral calculations from now is highly and incredibly impossible. Context might change. We saw this with the coronavirus pandemic around the world where elections suddenly gave us unexpected results. But in the last elections, AMLO got a 53% of people who voted for him. The polls show that that support has grown to 60% and that the second place goes to one of the traditional parties who goes just above 10% of the of the people who support them for the next presidential election. So once again, um, the permanence of power of a single person is not necessary for a dictatorship to be made, but the modern dictator gets to power through the system and then rigs it to his favor. What if Morena wins again and they go with all of the reforms that they want, having increased their majority in Congress, having penetrated the judicial power, Maybe even the Electoral Institute in Mexico, which apart from AMLO wanting to politicize it, he wants to federalize it, which means taking away the power that the states, that the Mexican states have and giving it to the federal government. Andrew, let me ask you this question. If you were uh, the leader of a country in a hypothetical scenario and you wanted to remain in power, What would be the first reform that you would do? Yeah, you consolidate power and you get a hold of the electoral process. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So this is why we have to eye this reforms that AMLO wants to make in Mexico with a close eye. Because yeah. Latin America, as we've mentioned it many, many times in this interview, uh, isn't foreign to the concept of a dictatorship. Yeah. Uh, it's It's so wearing, so sad that the whole region has had this tradition of voting against our interests, the democratic interests. And here's a, a factor. Let me let me talk about the, 
the militarization of, of the country that has gone under AMLO. So back in, in, in Chile, for example, in the 1970s, Salvador Allende was elected president. Uh, he faced lots of opposition. His economy was crumbling. He wanted, or at least I think from, a, from an, an analysis point of view, that he wanted to consolidate power. And what did he do? He gave power to the military. Now, who was one of the, of the people he gave power to? Pinochet, who we know was dictator from 1973 in the coup d'etat that happened in, the, in September 11 of 1973 and, re, and remained in power until the 1990s. Now, why do I mention this? AMLO has given too much power to the military in Mexico. Uh, more than 30 tasks have been given to the military under him that don't necessarily pertain to a military in Mexico and not in normal democracies. Control of ports, the construction of all parts of the Maya train uh, of banks, the construction administration of hospitals and airports, and they have even attended crime. They were also uh, the ones who rescued uh, the Bolivian dictator Evo Morales after there was electoral fraud in 2019. And the people ousted him out of power through protests, which mm -hmm. tells you as well that he has been cozying up to dictators. Costa Rica, my, my beautiful country. Why do you think that we have such a, a beautiful democracy in the concert of nations and such a comparable um, example and, and, and some institutions to look up to? Because we have no army. Uh, the army doesn't exist. We can invest that money into education, and uh, health and the people, but more than that, we have healthy institutions, a healthy separation of power, strong branches, and normal. Talking to uh, Gabriel Salazar Singh, uh, one last thought to kind of loop back where we started to bring a bow on this conversation. You talked about the people. Uh, the people as populists usually put these dictators in power because he tickles their ears and tells them what they want to hear. The only way you usually get rid of a dictator is the people have to rise up and take it back from them. Uh, the discouraging thing here, and you noted in your piece, though, is even though the Mexican people are very apathetic in their elections, like you said, they only had 20 percent turnout this last time out, uh, projected to be that again or close to it. His personal popularity is still very, very high. How do you explain that discrepancy? Because the heart of the matter of whether this turns into a dictatorship or not for the country of Mexico, and that's our neighbor. We need to get along with them. We want them to be as healthy as possible because that makes our country better, too. And it sure, at, least, at the very least, doesn't make more problems for us. Isn't that discrepancy kind of the heart of the matter of whether this is going to go dictatorship or not? And what do we do about it with that discrepancy of they're apathetic to vote, but they're still pretty popular for a guy who's clearly trending in an authoritative direction? So um, there's the, the topic of, of his approval ratings. Uh, it was Wittgenstein, the, the philosopher, who said that truth is independent from perception. And the only truth here is that no dictatorship is good. Go to the Dominican Republic, uh, or back, in, back then, for example, 
when Trujillo, the dictator who committed heinous crimes against his own people, was murdered, people suffered. Go to Chile, when Pinochet did a referendum on whether he, on whether the people wanted or did not want for him to remain in, in power uh, in the yes or no referendum, lots of people voted for him. Go to Argentina, you'll see the, the influence of Videla, Paraguay, the influence of Stroessner. So this Venezuela, Hugo Chavez is still a, a popular figure. So no dictatorship is good. And I've mentioned it before. It's, it has been a fad or a tradition between Latin American countries to vote against their own interests, which are the, the democratic interests. But if you, if we were to be like doctors, for example, and do a surgery and analyze the root problem, what would we see? That people are tired of corruption. They are tired of violence. They're tired of being lied to. And the result is that they vote for authoritarian figures who at the end of the day are much worse than the leaders who are elected democratically and leave power democratically and don't mess with the separation of powers. Gabriel Salazar saying it's a universal thing that uh, if, if you've got a country that's having economic and corruption problems, more freedom will cure those problems. Less freedom will perpetuate those problems. Uh, we'll keep an eye on our friends to the South and Mexico and the other countries in Latin and South America that perpetually have to struggle with this. Frankly, in America, we need to pay attention to it because we're not doing great on it on our own front in a couple of different ways. Gabriel Salazar saying outstanding stuff today. Really appreciate your time. We're going to have you back on. But until we get you back on, uh, let folks know where you're writing, what you're working on, and what your social media is so they can follow you until we see you again on Hertel. The Right now, I'm writing an article with the help of my, my friends over at Young Voices about the, the importance of liberalizing the economy and how that is in the interest of the poors, of the poorer people, um, and the middle class, and everyone, really. And you can find my writings over at Twitter at Gabriel Sala Singh. So that's my name without the Salazar, just the Sala. And uh, his Twitter handle is on the screen graphic there. If you're watching on the YouTube or the Perfect. Facebook page, make sure you give him a follow. Uh, we joke about me being the oldest of the young voices, which is true. I am the oldest. I think he's the youngest. Uh, I can't believe how articulate and insightful you are. You've got a great future ahead of you, my friend, and we're glad to get in on the ground floor of it. Can't wait to talk to you again. Thank you very much. And, Thank you uh, very much. I'd love to be here. And I just got to mention again, we were talking about it before I brought you on, that picture is spectacular. Of, that's your grandfather over your shoulder. That's not him in one of the old-time photos that you get at the amusement park. That's what I thought it was <laughs> when I first saw it. That's actually his grandfather, the spitting image. Good-looking family. My grandfather and my beautiful mom, my beautiful grandma, and my grandfather, who was an admirable man, the man I look up to the most. Yeah, my uh, my paternal grandfather, uh, just a titan of a guy. I, I want to do a show. We should just do a show on our grandfather sometime. We'll bring you back and do that as a special, maybe. I'd love that. Uh, I'd love it, too, my friend. Fam fam family gets it done. Uh, Gabriel Salazar Singh, Young Voices contributor. Great job, buddy. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir.
Kyle. Welcome back to Herd Tell. We're just going to touch on this for a minute because I'm kind of tired of talking about this individual. Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia. Yes, she was on the witness stand in a trial. Now, here's what's going on with this. Uh, There is a movement uh, by some political operatives to get a couple of people kicked off the ballots because of their involvement with the January 6th rioting. Uh, They have brought a case against Madison Cawthorn, and they've brought another case against Marjorie Taylor Greene, and they've threatened to do so in a couple other places. Now, the uh, Madison Cawthorn one already got nixed by the judge. That ain't going to go forward. But the Marjorie Taylor Greene one, they let proceed, and she had to testify under oath. Now, this probably isn't going to go anywhere, and we'll detail why in just a second. But what was interesting was what she did not say on the stand. If you remember back during the steroid trial, Sammy Sosa famously in front of Congress all of a sudden forgot how to speak English and other people had the classic, I don't recall, Senator. Well, that's throughout Marjorie Taylor Greene went. She didn't claim to forget how to speak English, at least. But she did say, I don't recall a whole bunch to a whole bunch of stuff that we have her on the record recalling quite clearly when she isn't under oath and has very serious consequences if she was going to be caught lying. So I wrote about it in Ordinary-Times.com. You can look at it. And I said, uh, quoting myself here, it never fails that the most bombastic blowhards change their tunes when there are real consequences to the words coming out of their mouths. The legal basis for this attempt to keep her off the ballot is very questionable. And the folks looking for a reckoning over January 6th are not going to find one here, if anywhere. What is apparent is what Marjorie Taylor Greene has told us through her actions and rhetoric all along. There's no there there. Her fire-breathing MAGA act is all pyrotechnics like a sparkler and no actual ordinance to do anything other than spew sparks and the stench of sulfur for burn-up material that flashes brightly but has no substance to it. Oh, and there's one more twist to come in this political clown show because yet another Georgia shambles back to the forefront. Uh, Whatever the judge decides here doesn't actually become a final thing. It goes to Brad Raffensperger. Yeah, you remember him from the Georgia mess and recall and all that. Uh, he's actually up with a challenger as well. Uh, so Brad Ravensburger, call your office again. In the end, this legal challenge will probably fail. Marjorie Taylor Greene will get to claim even more victimhood in the fundraising thereof. It's a, The electorate in her very red district will probably reelect her. And one of the most unfit members of Congress in recent memory will continue to be an embarrassment for the country. We get the government we deserve. But we should all loathe the voters of Georgia's 14th district for thinking Marjorie Taylor Greene should be anything more than the on-paper front woman for her family's businesses. Those voters deserve all the invective they get. More her tell right after this. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. One little final note here. We usually try to end on an uplifting note. Uh, we all miss Sean Connery. Loved all of his movies. Loved him as James Bond. Loved him in just about anything he did. Cool little story, though. His estate, uh, his widow has been selling. He had an extensive art collection. And one of the prize pieces of that art collection was an actual Picasso. It's expected to raise almost 15 million pounds. That would be somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to $27 million. Then auction it. For the charity trust, uh, it is hoping it will benefit one of his many charitable endeavors. But just a really cool incident. Uh, they are going to auction off his Picasso for the charities that were near and dear to him. A lot of money for one little painting. Then again, when Picasso does it, it's going to be worth a lot. 
So we miss Sean Connery, but he's still doing good work from his art collection. God bless them. Uh, that'll do it for her. Tell a lot of great guests this week. Very excited about it. Anxious to tell you. It's cool talking a little Mexican politics. We span the world here. We don't just talk about the things we want to talk about. We need to keep that wide perspective. We'll continue to do so. Appreciated our guest, Gabriel, being here for that. We'll talk to you again tomorrow morning. Remember, Good Talks, the interview-only segments come out every afternoon. You can find them on the YouTube channel and on all the podcasting platforms. Make sure you subscribe to all of those, uh, the YouTube channel and podcasting platforms. That way you don't miss a single thing with her tell. So until we see you again, wherever you are across the street around the world, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you are well fed. Can't wait to see you again on her tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.